Using technology to help prepare for natural disasters. That's our Textonation. I'm Fred Fishkin. Joining us from the nonprofit disaster relief organization, Direct Relief, is Vice President of Research and Analysis, Andrew Schroeder. Hi, Andrew. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Let's start out with a bit of background about Direct Relief. Sure. So Direct Relief is a nonprofit humanitarian organization, as you mentioned. It's been around since 1948 and principally works in humanitarian supply chain. So uh, ensuring access to essential medicines and medical supplies, either under normal conditions of scarcity for people living in poverty or during crisis, including natural disasters, conflicts, um, pandemics, um, and things like that. You've had uh, some busy months and years. So you also have a joint effort with Harvard University that's called Crisis Ready. What is that? That's right. So um, Crisis Ready is a research and response platform that is co-hosted between Direct Relief and the Harvard Data Science Initiative, um, and particularly with researchers uh, that are affiliated with uh, the Harvard T.H. Uh, Chan School of Public Health uh, and Harvard Medical School that looks at how we take large-scale private data sources, things we call novel data sources, which can include everything from data collected from mobile devices, social media, remote sensing, financial services, uh, private insurance, uh, things that are not open data from government. And... Uh, look at how we can analyze that, uh, share it safely, come to analytical conclusions that can help to drive more effective decision-making during, uh, before, during, and after crisis. So how we can think about uh, control of disease, how we can think about resource allocation, how we can think about uh, the recovery that communities have to go through uh, after a disaster. And you were tracking evacuations in, in Florida ahead of uh, Hurricane Adalia. Is that, is that right? Tell us how that how you, how you were doing that and how it was used. Yeah, the, so Hurricane Adalia, uh, which was fortunately um, not a uh, worst case scenario for Florida, we were pretty worried about it as it approached shore. Um, it was a very strong storm. It escalated prior to landfall into a Category 4. Uh, it bent up towards the area of Florida that's called the Big Bend area, which is a relatively rural uh, area of Florida, uh, so much lower population than areas like Tampa Bay or South Florida. Um, and we uh, typically do this during an emergency at this point where we take uh, data from the Facebook platform uh, that's provided through uh, research and nonprofit data agreement through Meta. Uh, data for good and look at the change in the Facebook user base um, at intervals of time uh, in eight hour increments before, during and after the crisis so that we can tell uh, where uh, areas may be evacuating uh, around when say evacuation orders may have been issued. Uh, we know that an order has been issued, but through the social media data, we can understand better whether people are following the order at what proportion of the population. Um, 
it's a sample of a sample, so it's worth understanding that it's a statistically relevant sample of the population, but it's clearly not the entire population. It's using data that location services has been enabled for. Uh, and in Florida, that's actually a pretty high number of people. We're estimating that communities in the Big Bend area that were affected by the hurricane were um, using location services on Facebook around 20 to 25% in most cases. So that's a highly statistically relevant sample. And that let us pick up early on uh, changes in places like Steinahatchee, uh, which is on the coast of Florida, where uh, even before the search and rescue operations uh, took place, we were able to detect that population had decreased by uh, an order of around 80%, uh, but not entirely. Uh, they experienced a storm, a storm surge around nine feet. So even for people that were left behind, that was uh, you know, a pretty significant life-threatening situation. Uh, we can communicate with uh, our partners in the area, which is primary health care and emergency management and uh, you know, a number of other people uh, that are looking at trying to understand what's happening in real time in an emergency situation. And of course, uh, you were active before that helping in, in Maui. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, Maui was uh, a very different kind of disaster in the sense that it happened extremely fast. Um, so, uh, you know, I should note direct relief isn't, you know, one of the reasons why we're engaged in these places is because we do actually have long-term relationships with the uh, primary health system usually in these places. So we're sending uh, shipments of essential medicines on a regular basis. So when we're, when we're responding, we're responding to accelerate uh, and expand work that predates the disaster in Maui. Um, you know, as we saw the uh, fire, you know, started out as, you know, a relatively low level risk event that was turbocharged by winds that were uh, blowing in from a nearby typhoon and then suddenly uh, reached catastrophic proportions and burned out the entire uh, town of Lahaina uh, and neighboring areas. And what we were able to see afterwards was to reconstruct the uh, pathways of evacuation. So uh, looking at social media, um, mo mobile device data, uh, where were people leaving from uh, Lahaina to go towards? Uh, how did that correspond with the shelter network, um, the frequency with which they left the island of Maui altogether uh, for neighboring islands? Um, you know, we were, uh, some of that is not, totally surprising. Uh, we were able to see that there's a concentration of shelters in the sort of central towns uh, on the island of Maui that saw an influx of people uh, and uh, a number of uh, trips kind of regularly being made principally to Honolulu, uh, but also to some neighboring islands uh, that were not uh, the main island of, uh, uh, of Honolulu. Uh, so you know, that then informs thinking about where uh, sort of the denominator is shifting on the population. So how many people are in need at different places? And that can be combined with other data. For instance, the overnight shelter census that's taken uh, in shelters to determine how many people are literally staying in a shelter 
and compare that against the mobility data to see uh, whether people may be uh, staying in a number of other places that are not formal shelters and uh, how we might think about the change in that denominator as we look at healthcare support on the island. So the technology and the data are used primarily to help you get resources where they're needed most? Yeah, I think that's right. For us, in these cases that we were just mentioning for natural disasters, um, bearing in mind, I guess that no disaster is totally natural, um, there are ways for us to understand the way that kind of the shift in population affects the change in need for humanitarian resources at a time of crisis. I mean, it's interesting to compare it to the uh, hurricane forecasting where, you know, one of the real success stories in uh, scientific uh, event forecasting over the last, say, 20, 30 years has been the ability to very precisely understand where hurricanes are going, the wind speed, the time of landfall, uh, how they intensify as they reach land, the way in which uh, water vapor may be absorbed in the atmosphere, all of these geophysical events that really define what a hurricane is and what its likely effect will be. And in the case of Idalia, our hurricane forecasters were absolutely right on the money. I mean, they really predicted exactly where the storm was going to make landfall. We don't yet have a counterpart in like population in the social dynamics uh, that determine how an event becomes a disaster. So uh, an event only becomes a disaster when it interacts with society and when it affects the built environment and people's lives and communities. So where people are moving, uh, where they go to, what kinds of uh, resources they uh, you know, place stresses on, that might be emergency room admissions, that might be shelter admissions, that might be access to services like gasoline and food. Um, but there uh, is a need to develop, and I think we're only in early stages of this really, uh, a kind of counterpart to the weather forecast in um, the case of hurricane landfalls that would let us anticipate where you're going to see increased need for populations that are shifting as a result of disaster. And just the last part of that is to really make that clearly an interface with what we call social vulnerability analysis. So disasters tend to affect the most vulnerable, most adversely, people that were more vulnerable prior to the event. And that means understanding poverty, uh, it means understanding housing inequality, it means understanding uh, the inequality of access to resources and factoring that into our models of how people move so that we can understand the inequality of resource ac uh, access after an event. And inequality uh, when it comes to mobility often plays a role there too, right? So. Absolutely. I mean, we we saw that the, 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 the sort of turning point case in this in in sort of like uh 21st century uh american experience was hurricane katrina where we saw that you know if you had a car uh and you had access to fuel you could get out of the way of the storm relatively easily you went to some place that was far away from new orleans uh and you waited things out and you returned when it was safe and if you had mobility impairments for any number of reasons whether you were poor and you didn't have access to a car and depended on public transportation or maybe you were uh in an in a wheelchair and you didn't have uh easy access to mobility on a day-to-day -day basis or you're elderly and 
you may not be driving your own vehicle, uh, the elderly are disproportionately affected by these events, then you ended up in a crisis situation on a more pro you know on a disproportionate uh to a uh, extent and so that's where you know we want to think about you know how do we understand where everyone's moving where 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 are they coming from and to how does that relate to what we know about the characteristics of their neighborhoods uh the likelihood that people might say you know have a power dependent medical device uh where you know, they might we increasingly run healthcare through technology now, where people self-manage care through insulin pumps and other kinds of diagnostic equipment or ventilators at home, oxygen equipment, etc. If a power outage occurs in a hurricane, that's going to be a big problem for you. Um, so, you know, those people are we need to plan for to a greater degree and understand who might be left behind uh, in these circumstances. You are also the president of the nonprofit WeRobotics.org. Tell us a little bit about that effort. Well, I wouldn't say I'm the president at the moment. I'm a co-founder of the organization, and up until quite recently, I was the board president. Uh, we Robotics is an effort that started in 2015 uh, after you know some of the early efforts uh, in the international humanitarian community to use drone technology for response to humanitarian crisis. So the key ones uh, were the earthquake in Haiti, uh, the uh, earthquake in Nepal, uh, Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines, these enormous humanitarian catastrophes. And the idea at the time was that drones could play a useful role in things like being able to take uh, high resolution images of damage to be able to model the impact of an event very quickly after a disaster. Um, or, you know, collect other kinds of data that would be relevant to how we think about the response to, uh, to these kinds of crises. But only uh, we, what we, one of the things we discovered was that this was only really possible if you were already kind of present, that you needed to move technology in, you needed to um, you know, have people that know how to use it. So when you were dependent on international experts coming into a, an area that's been affected by crisis, just a cascade of errors would happen around not knowing the language, not knowing the regulations, uh, you know, running afoul of, of local law, even uh, cultural sensitivity, things like this. Uh, and so We Robotics was formed with the premise that uh, actually the world is full of experts um, and they live in many of the places that are most affected by crisis, but they're not connected effectively with technology. Um, so uh, if you were to form uh, local organizations, in our case, we called them flying laboratories, flying labs, uh, where you could get local experts to uh, use drone technology, understand repair and maintenance, uh, the data outputs, uh, GIS, and, and increasingly artificial intelligence, that they could actually be already in place when crisis happens. And they can do a ton of important work in the meantime as well. Everything from, you know, experiments in delivery of medicines using drones, uh, in, uh, you know, combating deforestation and the loss of, uh, say, coastal mangroves, uh, the... Um, 
you know, understanding uh, uh, urban uh, parcel distribution for land ownership in informal settlements, uh, just a whole range of different use cases that also are relevant to crisis. And so now there are over 40 around the world. Um, they really, the, the labs now from a local uh, perspective really drive the activity of the organization. I, I'd say the labs have really become We Robotics in a way that is uh, maybe wasn't true back in 2015. Um, and, you know, I think that model of driving technology innovation for crisis and the benefit of, of, uh, of vulnerable communities from, from the bottom up is something that we're starting to really see, you know, not only be possible, but to be one of the most important uh, changes that we can uh, effect in um, application of technology for social crisis. Just terrific. And uh, the website is werobotics.org. Direct Relief, you can find that at directrelief.org. So thank you and congratulations on, on the work that you're doing. Andrew Schroeder, thanks for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs>